ready for the interview And if you get a cue live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto Real talk, pronto, doctor, D, PhD, hit the intro Hold up, wait, gotta be social Network, global, a home for the locals Gotta be social Network, global, a home for the locals Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower, every note, or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew, cruising, you can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at amfam.com. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Nissan, how do you get to the top? Calculating. Proceed to 1959. Take a hard left in East Africa at the 71 Safari Rally. Veer right for 19 off-road championships in the Baja Desert. Proceed towards Moab. Take the trail to Hell's Revenge. Include steep incline. Continue for the next million miles. Um, where to first again? 60 years, millions of miles, and the capability to take you anywhere. This is the new Nissan. All right. Here are Dr. D's social network here with Dr. Devin Price. How are you? Hi. Hello. Good afternoon. I'm good. Uh, How are so, you? Good. It's warm there. It's got to be warm in Chicago, right? Yeah. 85. It's summer is finally really here. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of funny. So... Uh, I have a live virtual personal training business and a lot of my clients are different parts of the country and just was broadcasting from Chicago, my previous session. So from Chicago to Chicago right now. Yep. Yep. It was just all pinging over. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about um, one of your books here, which I actually was funny how I started reading it. My wife was at the library. She's an avid library person. She's like, I got this book for you. I think you'd like it. And I said, oh, okay. I'm not a huge reader. And uh, I look at it, I go, I'm probably going to like this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm probably going to like this. I'm definitely in the past have been one of those folks who have extremely into productivity. That has changed quite a bit. So reading your book where I'm at in my life reminded me of my previous life about it. So let's start from there a little bit. What was the motivation to write this book? I mean, I kind of understand it a little bit from reading the book, but mm-hmm. for the audience, tell, talk a little bit about the book and why you started, to, why you wrote it. Yeah. So like you, I was um, definitely very achievement oriented uh, in an earlier life. Um, I uh, knew from a pretty young age as a teenager that I wanted to be a psychologist, that I wanted to be a professor. I had this idea in my mind that that was a a setting in the world and a role for myself where I could really be safe as someone who was a little bit unusual, you know, like, and I think a lot of marginalized people go through this idea of if I achieve enough and I carve out a little independent niche for myself, then it'll be okay, despite all of the oppression that I have to worry about, right? So I was I was really dead set on that goal from a really young age. I took college classes when I was in high school. I finished college early, went straight ahead to grad school, just blew through grad school as fast as I possibly could. I got my PhD when I was 25 years old. Um, that was February of uh, 2014. And that February, like a week later, maybe not even a week, I started experiencing this really intense fever every single night. It was right after my dissertation defense. Every night at around 6 or 7 p.m., a like 103 degree fever would just hit me and I'd just be debilitated for the night. And even when that was happening to me and it was not getting better for weeks, I was still going to work at my postdoc that I had just gotten. I was still trying to exercise every day. I was still trying to pack as much in as I could into those hours of the day where I didn't feel sick, which is so twisted um, and really illustrates where my mindset was at back then. It was like, oh, I can't let anything, even this chronic illness, get in the way of my productivity. And I went on like that for months um, from February through to November of that year, just resisting the fact that my body had needs and limits. I got tested for a bunch of medical conditions. We could never really figure out any particular you know, diagnosis as to why I was getting sick every single night. 
The problem was, I think, ultimately just overwork because once I finally stopped being in denial in that way um, and trying to do it all and act like I wasn't sick and just cut back and really reach, you know, reformatted my whole life around the fact that I had a lot less energy, it was only then that I started to physically recover. And that was the moment that got me rethinking everything about how I had lived and evaluated my life and just thought about the world up to that point. I remember reading that part in your book about you being uh, having the fever for like a, a long, like a crazy long time to mm -hmm. have that feeling on a nightly basis. Was that transition like a slower transition to not being so fixated on productivity or was it like a really big, like just traumatic change? Like I have to change this. I think it was it was slow, but it was also dramatic hmm. um, because I had just finished graduate school. So it was supposed to be the time uh, in theory where you're thinking about applying to these tenure track jobs. Right. And that is like a full court press. That's a full time job itself, yeah. applying to tenure track jobs. And I just knew I didn't have the energy in me to do it when I thought about it. And this happens sometimes to people who get burned out. You just don't have the will to go on anymore. And in some ways, that was kind of a gift because it was my body and my mind telling me at that point, like, you're feeling revulsion even thinking about this work. It's not for you. So that was kind of my first glimmer as I was just adjusting to what my new energy levels were like. But then, like I said, I was still in denial for almost nine months trying mm. to work very hard even as I was ill. And it was only after that denial failed over and over again that I was ready to finally try something different. And, and that's kind of how it goes with me. I'm always, I always have to learn it the hard way with this overwork stuff. <laughs> now it makes me think too, like when you were researching information for the book, what did you uncover that surprised you when you were doing that? Yeah, I think the thing that surprised me the most was how much our productivity research that um, industrial organizational psychologists have established, how decades and decades in a row they've just found over and over again in a bunch of different industries that you really can't force people to be more productive than they're going to be. You know, you can change how the office is laid out, you can change <laughs> the lighting, you can micromanage, you can add an app. There's only so much work people are capable of doing. And, it, you know, past that, all you're going to do is make them miserable and spend a lot of money. You're not going to make them more productive again. <laughs> and the most shocking thing to me is that, like, the business community still can't learn that lesson. That's so true. You know? <laughs> yeah, we just keep beating our heads against the fact that human beings have limits. It's just shocking. It is. I, I know it's so crazy. It's kind of like, and this has been almost socialized into people's way of work, is this volume. I must doing more equals better results is this myth. Talk a little bit about where this myth came from and why has it been so ingrained into people's psyche, especially at work? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the Protestant work ethic and really the origins of America as a country um, and many other countries as well. You know, in the book, I, I tie it back to um, the Puritans and they had this belief um, you know, starting out in England and then into the U.S. as it was being colonized, this belief that if a person worked hard, that was a sign they had already been chosen for heaven. So it wasn't even about like earning your way into heaven through working hard. It was just like, if you're a motivated person, you're a good person. And if someone isn't motivated, which who knows what the reason might have been back then, depression, ADHD, you know, right. who knows? Who knows, yeah. Um, that was a sign that they were damned. And so you didn't have to worry about them as a society because, oh, they're just going to hell anyway. And um, in the U.S., we use that same logic to justify enslavement. Um, and then after abolition, we use that same logic to deny giving reparations to formerly enslaved people. And it just keeps popping up in our history time and time again. Anytime a group is marginalized and struggling and has been oppressed, we just say, oh, they're just lazy and looking for a handout. Yeah. You can't trust them. Anybody who needs help is suspect, basically. And so we still bring that attitude to work um, and think that we need to micromanage people and control people and that we also, that we can't trust ourselves <laughs> to just take it easy and trust our own instincts at all. What is this commentary about relaxation? Why is almost relaxation uh, or taking time 
to just kind of do nothing. I love in your book when you talk about these times, kind of these water cooler moments, like it's always seen as a bad thing. Why is it so hard for us to overcome these ideas of kind of relaxing, even at work? Yeah. Yeah, it's so sick that it even gets called time theft, right? Like, right. <laughs> it's like if you're in a work meeting that's a team building exercise that somebody in management set out to create, then it's, you know, then it's team building. But if it's just an organic conversation with someone next to you in the office, that's time theft. It's very twisted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense. But I think it has to do with control. I think there's this mm. desire to control the people beneath us if we're managing someone or to control ourselves that we like can't trust people and can't trust ourselves. And so we try to impose this structure on everything when you, despite that human beings have really um, advanced just instincts for what we actually need. And if we were allowed to just kind of listen to those instincts, a lot of times we would just organically arrive at the right balance of work and daydreaming because that's needed to do good work yeah. and socializing and wasting time that we need to actually thrive. You know, it made me think of like, I think it was in, it's one of the Avengers movie with Tony Stark. He's on this big ship and he's like, that guy's playing Tetris while he's at work. You know, and it's like, mm. and then I started thinking about your book. I was like, yeah, but I think a lot of people do that. Like, yes. <laughs> I think a lot of people just like want to zone out, especially if you're in a job where you're like in a cubicle or something and it's just monotonous stuff. You can only stare at a screen so long and yeah, you, know, you need a break in your mind, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what some of the research that I cite in the book about um, what researchers call cyber loafing cyber loafing yeah, <laughs> is that it's kind of, you know, our brains didn't evolve to be sitting in one place without any stimulation for hours and hours every single day. Like we were meant to be looking around, talking to each other, you know, appreciating nature, discovering new things. And so I think sometimes when we can't do that, that's when we start, you know, online shopping or playing Tetris because <laughs> we just need to escape mentally at least for a minute. It's true, it's true. So it makes me think like, so as you're writing the book, you know, there's some surprising things you found out. How did the book change you during the course of writing it? Like, what were some thoughts you started having to yourself? Like, huh, maybe there's another step I need to take in this. Yeah, writing the book definitely made me feel like a hypocrite. Right? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because I'm, <laughs> I'm making all these bold declarations about how people need to not define their worth by their productivity and not mm. chase after achievements. But there's, I mean, a book is like very much this like achievement that you, <laughs> right. that you do, that you get this like feedback from that people tell you it's impressive and you worry about, am I writing it fast enough? And and all of these things. Um, and I really, in the process of working on the book was just investigating all of the different areas of life where we overwork and overcommit, our friendships, our, our body image, everything. So I feel like for me, and this will probably be a lifelong thing, I'm just constantly uncovering new, like I, like I think I've recovered from this problem. And then I look under a rock <laughs> and there's another weird self-defeating belief that I have. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're still making yourself work out this many days per week, or you're still making yourself, you know, not spend money in this way or whatever yeah. it is. There's just so many rules that we box ourselves in with. Um, but that also means there's so many opportunities to just keep setting ourselves free from them over and over again. So that's been the journey for me, for sure. Talk a little bit about how you think the pandemic has affected people's idea of productivity and their work week pandemic has been such an interesting paradox in this way. Um, I'm sure a lot of people remember in March and April of 2020, as a lot of us were working home for the first time, a lot of companies invested in software designed to kind of force people to still be productive while at home. <laughs> so, you know, there were even managers who were having their employees like screen share what they were doing on Zoom to make sure they weren't slacking off. <laughs> while working from home during a pand global pandemic. Uh, yeah, and, and key logging software, all of these things, you know, making sure you're active on Slack, the little green, you know, uh, you know, notification is there showing you're active and working. And there was this desire to micromanage kind of from above, but from beneath the average worker, especially from everyone that I've spoken to um, in the process of kind of bringing this book into the world, so many people had a realization of, 
what really matters in life here? Yeah. Like, do I, does it really matter if I return this email within 20 minutes or should I go spend some more time with my kids or just out in my garden um, close to the earth, you know? So there's been this strange push to not lose any product productivity, not give anything up in the wake of the pandemic. But then there's been this opposing force of individual people realizing, hey, working from home is, is great. I have so much more freedom now. I get to be with my family more. I get to have more time for my hobbies. I don't have a commute where I'm just stuck in the car all day. And so I think from the average person, it's really reaffirmed, what do I actually value the most in life? And I think that's why we're seeing things like the great resignation and yeah. people leave, leaving jobs that make it difficult for them to have a real whole life. So you think, do you think we're in a state where how we view work is changing dramatically? Are we in like a shifting point at this point where it's like people actually got to slow down? And when you slow someone down and they have thoughts that magically start appearing. Right. They start questioning things. And Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> is my life about work? It's like when you ask somebody what do they do? You automatically assume that their existence about what they do, not mm -hmm. who they are. Right. And, and what they do at work, not what they do as a hobby, right. what they're reading about, what they're obsessed with this week, you know, like, <laughs> you know, what, what TV show, what Reddit, you know, subreddit, are they falling down a wormhole? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think we are in a different cultural moment because we have so many signs of it, you know, the great resignation, this anti-work movement that's been kind of a big thing on social media. <laughs> People just walking out of bad jobs because they know that now for the first time in many of our working lives, you know, um, they actually have the power and the leverage yeah. to do so. And, and I think, you know, we also saw such immense loss in the pandemic and mortality really makes you stop and think, Yes, I can't do this forever. I'm not going to be around forever. What do I want to do yeah. with the life that I do have? And I think that has been a really powerful wake up for a lot of people. And that's been beautiful to see. And we are still seeing the, the ripple effects of that, thankfully. It's almost kind of like work, like this crazy work cycle that some this hamster wheel people get on almost makes you forget that you have a finite existence. Yeah. You just forget that other things exist. It becomes all consuming. And it makes me think, do you think that also that maybe things like remote work, like managers or micromanagers think like, listen, like, like you said, I'm losing control here, or there's this fear that people will wake up and realize they're, they're in the matrix, actually, actually, mm -hmm. you know, it's a big like connection to that. It's like, wait a minute, is this the real world? Or is this, this fabricated existence that people are shuttled into working nine to five? type right. of thing you know it's like the reality has changed yeah just like you said when you have a moment to reflect and rest you have the chance to have insight and we know that from creativity psychology research that it's only after you give yourself a break that you can have a big breakthrough yeah um and so i think and we also know that like cults when cults want to control people they keep them working really hard, isolate distracted, people, yeah. you yeah. isolate them and you make them super tired. You don't let them get any sleep. And on a way smaller scale, I think that's the hamster wheel that a lot of us get caught up on yeah. um, with our work. Maybe not on the same, you know, intensely abusive degree, but you know, you lose perspective. Um, and, and being that busy even changes your relationship to time. Time just yes. seems to flow by instead of just really sitting in your life and appreciating it and appreciating the people in it. Um, so I'm glad that that's changed. Want better ingredients without breaking the bank? With Florida Crystals, you get all the goodness of top quality sugars at a price that feels right. Made from organic sugar cane that we sustainably grow on our family owned farms right here in the US. Florida Crystals organic raw cane sugars are kind to you, the planet and your wallet. Whether your next recipe calls for light brown, powdered, or organic raw cane sugar, there's a Florida Crystal Sugar for every baking occasion. That's honest-to-goodness sugar. From earaches to strep tests, visit Miniclinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's how healthier happens together. Services vary by location. Prescriptions can be obtained at Pharmacy of Choice. Visit miniclinic.com for details.
for so many people. Yeah, I think it's pandemic. definitely something. It's the labor shortages and think people are still struggling with that. But I mean, people are like, why do I want to work in a horrible job? Like right. before, you know, you think about people of yesteryear and different generations, they were taking that abuse at work because they, were, they thought in their mind, well, there's a pension at the end of this rainbow. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be at it in, obviously that doesn't exist in most places more, but the thought of like, Hey, I'm just going to take this for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Like humans now are like, I will not be treated like this. And it's a right. good upright. It's like a positive uprising for people, you know? Absolutely. Yes. There's a lot of power in people saying like, I refuse to do this anymore, you know? And, and I'm a millennial. So when I entered the job market for the first time, it was, you know, 2008 and it was the great recession. And so we were told back then, you have to take whatever job you can get. We're lucky to even have a job. And if you have a job, you should take whatever amount of abuse you can handle because there aren't other options out there. And so it's very interesting for that script to be flipped um, and the forces of power to be kind of upended. And I've had friends and colleagues who I've seen, um, you know, their workplace was trying to bring everyone back into the office. And they just said, you know what? No. I'm going to go somewhere else and I'm not going to work someplace that makes me do that when it isn't necessary and things like that. Um, And so people are really demanding lives that are worth living for themselves, which is so cool to see. When you think of productivity, do you, do you think that it's kind of innately in someone or is it kind of stoked by the fire of parental figures or someone in their life? Are they socialized into it? What have you seen in that research in that area? Well, it's certainly true that your culture and your upbringing has an influence on how you think about these things and and what your habits are. But um, I really believe that all of us have um, what the author Rebecca Soldnett calls this need to be needed or this Mm. need to be helpful. Um, She has this book that I read during the the beginning of the pandemic, A Paradise Built in Hell. And that book Mm. is all about how when there's natural disasters, you know, a lot of cities worry there's going to be rioting and looting, but what actually happens is most people run towards the danger to try and find some way to help. That we want to have meaningful lives that are connected and where we feel like we're really helping other people. And I think if anything, a lot of our work lives just get in the way of being able to show up for others like that, you know? So true. yeah. So, you know, like I would do so much more for the people that I care about. I could help, you know, my friends with childcare more and elder care more and volunteer more in my community if I wasn't working so hard. And that's still a thing in my life I need to fix. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think we don't need to be worried about human beings being lazy. You know, we could all use some rest. Like if, if <laughs> yeah. we might all be lazy for like a month, if all of our jobs like magically ended yeah. and we all got yeah. universal basic income or something, but after like a week, a month of like playing video games and sleeping, we would want to do things that matter. Yeah. And we would, you know, that's what I really believe. That was a big shift I made. I was running really high-end clubs for a long time. And I was like, uh, it just seems like I'm working too much. And I, I always tell people this. I'm like, I always leave a huge part of my afternoon open, like three, four hours to do this and to watch Netflix and hang out and do nothing. And gar- I love gardening. Funny you mm. mentioned that. And do all these things that I couldn't do when I had a job that I was just grinding all the time. And I remember a couple of people asked me, how do you do that? Like, how do you just do nothing? I don't know how to do that. I'm like, I don't know, man. I just do it. (laughs) It's like a lot of fun. And there's, you see the stigma that people have like, well, I don't want to like, how can you watch something at 2 PM? Mm. I can just binge watch a show. like, cause I want to, (laughs) and it's not a bad thing. Just so you know, like, but people have been socialized in this mentality. Like, I need to be doing something productive during the middle of the day because that's what society tells me I should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so crazy how the book, I'm working on another book right now on shame. And one mm. thing that's amazing to me is how much, even when we're alone and we're just making a decision that's not hurting anybody, <laughs> we have this like eye of judgment on us. So it's like, oh, I can't watch Netflix at 2 p.m. Yeah. What would people think? And it's like, <laughs> The universe is indifferent to this. It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> this is not a sin. This is not a crime against anyone. But it, it's hard if you've just always been compulsively working yeah. to even just let yourself. That's another thing I'm working on a lot right now is just being mindful in the moment and enjoying letting myself yes. 
do those things that enrich my life, you know, because a lot of us forgot how to do that. I think there was a person in your book who um, maybe was in bartending industry or something, or, and uh, this person once like the pandemic happened, like just started doing other stuff, like pop-up stuff, like couldn't stand still, like you just couldn't do anything. And I think a lot of people relate to that. Like they got alone with their feelings and also that's uncomfortable too to actually start thinking about your life. Cause some people don't want to think about their life. They don't, they're like, I don't want to have to face this stuff. Like let's just go to work. You know, work is a distraction for your feelings in many ways too. Absolutely. It's a very effective avoidant (laughs) technique, you know? And so people just give me some work. I can't think about this stuff. I can't sit with this stuff. Yeah. Because it feels rewarding, you know, oh, I'm doing something. I'm getting something done. I don't need to think about myself and like any of these big existential issues. So yeah, it's, it can be almost addictive. Well, I think. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. And uh, I haven't read this, but uh, I believe it's unmasking autism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, this is fascinating to me, but since I haven't read it, I don't have a lot of backstory. Tell me why you wanted to go into writing this book and what, what was, what was kind of the genesis of that? Yeah. So I think one of the reasons why, um, with laziness does not exist, why I got onto that hamster wheel of hyperproductivity so much in the first place as a younger person was that. I was autistic, but I didn't know it yet. I didn't find mm. out until my late 20s. So all I knew was that there was something off about me and that people didn't respond to me they resp- the way they responded to everyone else, that I had trouble relating to other people. And so for me, I think that was a big part of why I really was so wedded to productivity because I thought I can't count on anyone else to show up for me. I'm gonna need to do everything myself and lean in on the things that I am good at. I'm not good at people, but I am good at, you know, academics or whatever. Um, So that was kind of some of the backstory to just my life. (laughs) That was definitely background radiation in my life that I didn't know until a few years after I finished my PhD when when a cousin of mine got diagnosed and um, pointed out to me how so many people in our family had kind of autism spectrum traits and I got to thinking, Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, no, no, no. (laughs) Oh no, this hits too close to home. And then, you know, then I looked into it for myself. Um, So I've been writing online about um, autism and about how many misconceptions people have about autism and what it looks like uh, for years now. And those were always essays that would get a really big response. Um, And autistic people, God bless us. I will always get these emails that are like, I think I might be autistic. Here's 10,000 words breaking down all my life memories <laughs> as to why okay, I maybe. think that. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know what? Just by the length and attention to detail in this email, I'm going to say you're probably autistic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I knew there was this, this population of people like me who were trying to come to terms with this stuff. And it tends to be people that I call um, in the book masked autistics. Mm. So they're people who got overlooked, didn't get a diagnosis when they were young. So it's lots of people of color, trans people, women, gender nonconforming people, and people in poverty. Um, and other groups too, but those groups especially you just didn't have a chance to get diagnosed when you were young for the most part, because everybody had the kind of white boy who's obsessed with trains <laughs> stereotype of autism in their minds. And those, those, are, those were the only people that got diagnosed. Yeah. Um, and so that's what kind of gave birth to the book is kind of giving a voice to people like myself and others who really diversify what autism is and what it looks like. Um, and just kind of advancing the case for just we need better research about this we need better tools and resources for the full community um, of autistic people and it's interesting how much we're learning about different populations of people like it feels like it's this rush mm-hmm. of like awakening Very uh, much. just so many different causes and issues going on and uh, I think it can be overwhelming sometimes with people because it feels kind of like, wow, I didn't know this whole thing was happening right underneath me. Mm. Or it was explained as something else. Right. And that feels like a lot of human history is something was explained of something else, but it was actually this type mm. of thing. And I think, how do you, how do you re- what's your recommendation for people who are like, this is very new information to them and how they are to navigate a world that's very new 
and, and whether it's terminology or being awo awoken to different ideas about people, what's the best advice for that? Yeah, um, it's interesting you ask that because that is something that I'm also kind of working on with this new book because yeah. I think I think we feel a lot of personal responsibility as individuals to do the right thing, to be the right person, to be yeah. informed on every issue and to, I, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as individuals to right every injustice yeah. when it's not it's not possible for us to do that alone. You know, it's yeah. a collaborative effort. So I would say probably for most people, the first reaction that they have to all of this stuff is being kind of overwhelmed. Yeah. And I think when you're overwhelmed, it can go in two different directions. You can either be in a panic and shame spiral where it's like, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I don't know enough. I'm not <laughs> doing enough on and on and on. Or you can become numb and say, well, I don't care. I'm not going to, I'm not going to let this group of people make me feel bad. And so I'm going to mm. just put on a shell of like apathy. Um, and I, that's, those are two ways that I often see it go. And so I think the the first place to start so that you don't end on either of those two paths is to just, just try and relax a little bit and just try <laughs> and remember you're just one person yeah. and that you're not going to know it all. It's okay to not know this stuff. Um, and that you, that there's really going back to, you know, uh, rethinking productivity, rethinking how much information we can take in at a time. And, and having some humility in that, you know, like relearning about, because as much as there's a new conversation online about autism, that's also happening with ADHD and lots of other mental disorders. And for a lot of people, you know, trans identity is a very new thing. And of course, people are still, you know, refining their understanding of racial justice in a lot of ways. Um, you don't have to be done. You'll never be done. That's not the goal. You know, it's just, what can I handle learning about now to help improve my life and my relationships with other people that I actually know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think when we move from like the big symbolic version of the thing in our mind down to just who are the people that I know? Who do I want to show up for more? Yeah. What does that person in my life need? I think that makes it a little bit more concrete because you can't do it all, you know, and you, you shouldn't put that burden on yourself to have to. If you can just be a better friend to a person that you know is struggling with depression or you know learn what someone in your life needs to be supported when there's you know another act of racial trauma happening in the country yeah that's that's a good place to start it's more empowering for both of you that way you write in your in your book uh laziness does not exist about i think it was with noah in there and mm -hmm. the discussions you both have and this kind of whole thing about it's good to have information, but it's good to have less also mm -hmm. at the same time. Can you talk further about that? I think that's such a, it's, it's a, a very important thing to point out because the internet, I think in many ways has made us believe we should have all the information, yeah. but in many ways it's good to not have all the information too. Absolutely. We consume more information in a day or two these days than our, you know, like our great grandparents consumed in weeks or months, yeah. you know, we're so plugged in. And what we know from, from psychological research is when you have that much information coming in all the time, often competing information uh, and misinformation and debates and fights, you never get the chance to sit and just dwell on it and reflect and ask yourself, what do I believe? What do I think actually makes sense here? And how does this new fact fit into my understanding of everything else that I've learned and experienced in the time before? And that process of really reflecting and generating insight, that's how humans learn and grow. Yes. We can't just instantly change from just being drowned in information. Um, so as much as we talk about knowledge being power, too much information is overpowering you know? Mm. Um, and so we, we have to have time to digest and reflect. And that doesn't mean that we're being irresponsible. I think a lot of people feel that they have some moral responsibility to bear witness yeah. to all the suffering in the world right. all the time. And that isn't going to make it possible for you to show up for people. It's just too overwhelming. Our brains just are not built for it. Yeah. So it's okay to really just say, I'm going to check the headlines in the morning and that's it, you know, maybe less than that. Like, I don't even necessarily <laughs> think you need to consume the news every single day because a lot of times it's just updates on something that you already know is really threatening and scary. 
um, it's okay to have time to digest and time away from it to, to build up your strength um, and resilience and to yeah. reflect on everything you've learned. Yeah. How does, you know, it's interesting, the concept of expertise is interesting to me. And I think sometimes when we present expertise as this really big thing, people go, well, you must not have any problems then in that area because you're an expert mm. in it. But I think it's good to debunk that or that. So how do you struggle with this, uh, with still with productivity and a changing environment? And you know a lot <laughs> in a specific area. What's your struggle with it? Yeah, yeah, I am definitely living proof that understanding this stuff is a problem doesn't mean magically being <laughs> cured of it. You know, as, as I already talked about, just even the nature of the work that I do, writing books, promoting books, it's this very superficial achievement-oriented world where I'm very proud of the writing and the difference that it can make in people's lives, but I'm also grinding away at this, at this thing that's for show, you know? So. Yeah. There's, there's a weird tension that's always going to be there, I think, if you're doing that work um, in, in the world that we're living in. Um, so I still struggle with not trusting myself. You know, mm -hmm. I still um, wake up every day thinking, oh, you know, you're, you're really going to screw it up this time. <laughs> like, you mm -hmm. know, like yeah. you're not going to get done the things that you need to do, even though I consistently have been able to build a life where I do a lot of meaningful work that I enjoy doing at least some of the time and, and I'm <laughs> proud of having done. Um, so I still struggle with that. Um, there's, there's this, and, and that's where the kind of like working on mindfulness and being more physically present in reality yeah. has been a big project for me this, this past year in particular, because that drops away a little bit of that um, worrying about the future, mm. you know, worrying about what I didn't do enough of supposedly in the past and just kind of appreciating people and nature and experiences and art, you know, when it's actually there in front of me. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely an ongoing struggle. I think if you grow up in a culture where this stuff's getting hammered into you, it's a lifelong process of still finding yeah. that programming in yourself and going, wait a second, I don't really believe that. I was taught to believe that, yeah. but I don't really believe that. Right. You mentioned like being physically present in reality. I, I caught on to that. Explain that a little bit more. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, and I think this is, is definitely an autism thing, but I think many people can relate to it, especially after the pandemic and us being just attached to our computers and social mm -hmm. media with nowhere to go. Um, I tend to detach from the world a lot, right? Um, we talked about how work is an avoidance strategy. I disappear into my work, I disappear into my head. And this is a really common thing for a lot of autistic people because we get really overwhelmed by people and if we're out in public, it's too noisy, it's too bright. There's lots of unpredictable movement from other people. And often the way that you cope with that is you just detach and you don't, you kind of blot it all out and you don't take it in. Um, and you know, people with social anxiety do that as well. People with anxiety, period, do that as well. It's yeah. not just an autism thing. Um, but when you do that, you're not in touch with what your body needs. You don't listen to your emotions and you are just kind of detached from the world and you miss out on a lot of the world's beauty um, and real genuine experiences too. So for me, I've had to really retrain myself. And for me, it's, uh, reconnecting with the world in like a tactile way, okay. touching things okay. really helps just, you know, instead of walking, you know, to the store as fast as I possibly can, why don't I just slow down and really <laughs> notice, you know, stop and, and touch a flower, you know, yeah. um, feel, you know, my shoes against different surfaces and kind of notice, oh, this is gravel. Oh, this is this kind of sidewalk, you know, just really physically remembering that I'm actually a person in the world and that this yeah. is the present moment. And for me, that definitely helps me detach from, oh, I need to do this. Oh, I need to worry about this. All of this living in my head um, or checking out on social media, which I think, yeah. again, are things a lot of people struggle with. That's um, a big struggle, yeah. Yeah, and just, again, being present in my body, present in the world, and not detaching all of the time. What's so interesting, I've, man, I've done so many interviews and stuff with people, and we end up talking about social media here and there. And, and it's so funny. They always say, 
and, and this is my observation of all these interviews, 400 plus things. It's like, I hate social media, but I, but I use it all the time. Like it's a constant thing, literally, Dr. Bryce. I hate it, but I feel like I have to do this. And it's just weird dichotomy that I've noticed is such a common thread among people around that. It's actually, I find it really strange and, and actually so unhealthy in many ways, you know? Very much so. It's very addictive. You know, the, these algorithms were designed to be addictive mm-hmm. from the notifications to, you know, having a feed where you can't, you don't see the people that you're actually following that yeah. you want to learn from. You just see a bunch of suggested posts and advertisements. It's all designed to suck you in. And I think we are getting to a point where it's just unsustainable because I feel like yes. at least anecdotally, I know more and more people who are just giving it up because yeah. they're realizing. Yeah, that's happening. Yeah, the benefits are not worth the drawbacks and there are other <laughs> right. ways to stay connected. You can write that's emails, right. you can text, you know. Yeah, I tell people because I, I don't, only social media, I have, I have uh, LinkedIn, my professional media, I've had it forever and that's pretty much it. And, and people always ask me, how do you get your podcast out there? I'm like, through the guests, through my LinkedIn. And it, it's still, it's ended up being fine. Like, yeah, we did exist before this. Like, it's not, I think there's, I, I am a, a Gen Xer. So I remember when the internet did not exist, like at all. <laughs> and I know that's hard to believe on some level, but I literally remember that. So I remember a time when I had to do all this stuff. I remember using pay phones. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I know, I think like the last pay phone got taken out of New York City the other day or something. Yeah, I like, saw <laughs> Things happen, you know, but right. it's, uh, I think it's sometimes you need to know that there are other options. And I think with social media, we've been taught to believe that this is how you grow your business. It's like the only way now mm-hmm. versus there's other things to do. It's kind of like, I want to get your take on this before we roll is, um, you know, mental health is very large and it should be. It's an important thing. But I often think about like, what's the line where something that is actually a true mental health crisis or just a bad day? I don't, sometimes I feel like we're, it's murky with that. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like with that, like, like, like everything, I don't know if everything is a mental health crisis or it's just a bad day, you know, like, Yeah. And there is a lot of very alarmist content on social media Mm. that will say things like, you know that you grew up in an emotionally neglectful home if, and then it'll be this really generic thing. Like you get anxious when your crush doesn't text you back. And it's like, (laughs) wait a minute, (laughs) that's a, that's a pretty normal human experience. That doesn't mean you're broken. You know what I mean? (laughs) Stuff like that. Well, like you, like you have abandonment issues. Like if you, you know, like feel any normal human emotion, you know? Um, so I think that's very much a thing and that is troubling, especially as someone who does write a lot about mental health and disability online and want to educate people. I think, unfortunately, especially on social media, people get this information that's very simple, very alarmist, and it's almost designed to be unempowering. Mm. Like this will make you feel scared and broken. And like, there's nothing you can do when really, yeah, sometimes you just have a bad day. Um, Sometimes you had, you know, a horrible childhood and you just had a bad day. You know what I mean? Right. These two things are not always the same. You can develop new habits and tools. um, And that that dialectic, right, as a mental health professional of like holding, there are things you can't control. Let's have space for that. But then there are things that you can control and working on those will make your life better. It's a lot of, it's a really hard conversation to have, especially in, in social media where everything's so quick and so <laughs> declarative and intense. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I, it concerns me on some level. Cause I'm like, you know, there are certainly it's great to have all of this information about it because man, people who have had mental health issues, it's been so under exposed, crazy underexposed, much like autism and different things. It's like, but then it's like, where's the line where it's like, this is a thing and but you're just having like a crappy day like this happens you're sad sometimes you get sad like mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you're going overboard like uh, i feel like we're at a point with that it's like okay i feel like humans tend to like go to extremes on everything mm-hmm. like we don't like become moderate we just be like 
boom this way or boom that way, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, and then we overcorrect. And then the we overcorrect. Yes, like, that's it. it's, it's like a massive overcorrection. All the where's the middle? Like, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, like many of us are us or our parents grew up in an age where it was like you don't talk about mental health. Right. And now we're in an era where every single thing is this pathology. It's yes. Like, it's actually not, it's fine to feel grief. It's fine to feel sad. It's fine to be angry. These things are totally fine. It's fine to be distracted. You know, like, yeah. like everybody is distracted. Not everyone has ADHD though. Some people right. do, you some know, like do. it's like, yes. it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating how we just can't seem to arrive at like a nice nuance of this is true. And this is also true. And let's just think, think our way <laughs> nuance through. Nuance thinking. Yes. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I know people find that, that so offensive. Online. How can you have a nuanced thought process? Right. It's hard to put in a tweet, right? So you can't even say it because it's too, you know, nuanced yeah. is longer and more reflective. It's longer. I think you mentioned also in your book about talking to people is really important. I know that sounds so basic, but it's so true. It's the reason why I do this all the time. It's like, just get to know different people. Like, and that's the beauty of the internet and different things. It, it can be used for good. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it yeah. is not like the Sith Lord, you know, it's like all right. the time. It's to, again, the extreme. What's the good side of these things? Having these conversations opens you up. And I think you had mentioned about actually when you're in something online to actually make it a one-on-one -on -one with someone. Right. And let, because then the conversation is nothing like it is when it's in a public square forum of the internet. Right. It makes such a huge difference when someone's in a comment section and they say something ignorant, you know, not even not something malicious. They just don't yeah. know what they're saying. People will immediately dogpile on them and feel triumphant by making fun of them or correcting them um, and treating them like they're the source of, you know, the problem. But if you take that same person and you just actually have a conversation with them. Um, I remember I had this conversation with this this nurse about um, how basically there's a lot of research showing that medical doctors underestimate how much pain uh, black patients feel and they right. underprescribe yeah. uh, pain meds for black patients. And she was, you know, this white nurse who was like, well, my hospital's so good. We don't do that. We don't treat people like that. Um, and everybody, you know, in the comment section was really like making fun of her for being yeah. so naive. But then I had, you know, a conversation with her in kind of private messages and was like, you know, here's the research and here's how this kind of thing works. and and she could connect it to her own experiences working in obstetrics and how a lot yeah. of people don't trust any women to ex express pain, but especially black women. Yeah. And so through having that conversation, she could kind of connect the dots and say, okay, I can understand how people might have this bias and they might not even know they're doing it. So I guess it maybe could be happening even in my hospital, you know, and it's just one of those things that it's mm -hmm. like, you know, you're just trying to find common ground and like talk about how this stuff works. And I'm not a nurse. I don't know what her life is actually like, sure. right? You yeah, know, of like, course. You know, it's actually really condescending and um and arrogant for me to come to it thinking I know what she knows <laughs> and doesn't know. And so just little things like that. It and you walk away from those experiences just feeling like, oh, I connected with another human. I learned about what the work they do. They learned about what kind of stuff I'm I'm thinking about. And and we found common ground instead of fighting and it also took way less time than having a <laughs> exactly. huge fight in the comment section it's like there's just uh, no nothing should have a comment section that's pretty much i know I'm right at. it's crazy <laughs> it's like yeah. oh this is like a wasteland here i mean it's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah it's just a battle arena for no reason yeah i tell you i have to tell you like one of my biggest things in life is just talking to people and you know i'm laying in my bed i'm reading your book i'm going through the pages just ripping through the pages. Again, I'm not a big reader. I, I don't know why. It's just never been a big thing for me, but I'm just destroying this book. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I look over at my wife and I said, I'll be contacting Dr. Price because I want to talk to Dr. Price and see maybe they'll be on the show, you know? And she goes, that's so you. You just go right into the fire, man. You don't care if people <laughs> tell you no or not. I'm like, well, it's just interesting. I want to talk to the person. And I, and so what a gift to spend some time with you, uh, that you allowed me to have some time with you. I really appreciate it to get a deeper perspective on your life, the book and everything. So please let all the beautiful folks know about how they can connect with you and, and read your awesome uh, work. Yeah. So my, so first of all, thank you so much for reaching out, you know, um, 
I, I do this writing so that I can connect with people about these ideas and these problems. And so it's always really rewarding to like get to have these conversations. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you reached out. Yes. Um, so yeah, my books are Laziness Does Not Exist and Unmasking Autism. Um, and I do a lot of writing on Medium, um, which uh, is all free to read. So that's at devinprice.medium.com. So D-E-V-O-N-P-R-I-C-E. Write a lot about autism, mental health, productivity, trans issues, shame, whatever I'm obsessed with at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I just had something that I wrote about how people are really doing a lot of armchair diagnosing during the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other oh, no, thing. <laughs> yeah, again, the internet uh, being a, mm -hmm. a battle zone. Um, so people can find me there. Um, and I and I am unfortunately on social media, uh, on Instagram <laughs> and Twitter at Dr. Devin Price. Um, though yeah, I am exactly one of those people who yeah, my, people. my time there is not it won't be forever because I can tell it makes yeah, me a worse you just feel it. person. Yeah. yeah, I can feel, yeah, you feel the it. time is, is coming to a close on those things. So, <laughs> so follow my medium instead. You can read the long yeah. essays that I put care into instead of a post, you know? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Price. Seriously, I really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is great. Do you know the risk factors for type 2 diabetes? Or what makes it more likely you or someone in your life might have the disease? With type 2 diabetes playing a growing role in the lives of so many, you need to know. In Project Power, a community program from the American Diabetes Association is here to help. Take our risk test today at diabetes.org slash Project Power. You can avoid the risk of type 2. Project Power will help. Anyone else have trouble sleeping last night and the night before that? Same. And I've tried everything, but it either doesn't help me sleep so I'm cranky and tired the next day, or I sleep and then I'm drowsy the next day. Luckily, Seize the Night and Day is here. Go to SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more about insomnia and how you can seize the night. And Carpe the Diem. Make their mission your mission because they will not rest until we all rest.